I have a confession to make, and it's pretty embarrassing. Book lover and SSR podcast host that I am, there are still a handful of majorly iconic works of kid lit that I never ever read. Don't hate me, okay? One book that I feel like I probably should have read but never actually did is L.M. Montgomery's Anne of Green Gables. As you'll soon hear in this episode, I am the proud owner of the series boxed set, but I spent my childhood gazing lovingly at it on my bookshelf instead of actually reading it. All of that changed in preparation for episode 33, though, and I'm now proud to say that I've met, dare I say become a bosom friend of, Anne Shirley. For others who have yet to read Anne of Green Gables, here's the gist. 11-year-old orphan Anne, spelled with an E, which is very important to her, starts a new life with Matthew and Marilla Cuthbert on their farm in the fictional town of Avonlea on Prince Edward Island. Anne has a rough start in Avonlea. Matthew and Marilla had actually been hoping to adopt a boy, so things feel off immediately. And from there, Anne struggles to find her place among neighbors and in school. She has quite the strong personality and dreams of finding good friends and one day romance. She also has a huge scope of imagination, her phrase not mine, and a head of bright red hair, which she would really like to change. In the next hour, you'll hear us discuss Anne as a role model for young girls, debate the choice she has to make at the end of the book between work and family, and consider the possibility that she might actually be a little annoying. Today's guest is Julie Vadnell, a freelance writer and founder of the newsletter Jules. Her work has appeared in Cosmopolitan, Elle, Esquire, Glamour, and Real Simple. Follow her on Twitter at Julie Vad and Instagram at Julie Vadnell. Sign up to receive Jules at julievadnell.com. Don't forget that you can help support the SSR podcast by becoming a Patreon sponsor. I am so grateful for everyone who has already come on as a supporter. And guess what? They get some pretty great rewards, including a monthly newsletter, on-demand book recommendations, bookmarks, tote bags, bonus episodes, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, or check out www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page for more information. Stay in the loop with all things SSR by following us on Instagram and Twitter at SSRPod and on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. If you're a fan of the show, I challenge you to help me spread the word by sharing it on social media. Take a screenshot of this episode wherever you're listening to it right now and post it to your Insta story. Don't forget to tag us at SSRPod. Let's get everyone in on it. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Julie. Welcome to SSR. Hi, how are you? I'm great. You are our first episode post-Manuary. So we are saying goodbye to the guys and you are our first lady back on SSR. Happy to be the first. (laughs) Proud of it. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. I'm really, really excited. I'm such a fan of the podcast. I'm like fangirling out a little bit. Well, I usually find myself fangirling when I talk to guests. I'm fangirling a little bit over you as a fellow freelancer. I feel like we have so much to talk about. We have so many things to discuss about life as a writer. So we're just going to fangirl over each other. We're going to have a great talk about Anne of Green Gables. Yay! I can't wait. (laughs) And I think you must be a super fan of Anne of Green Gables because you reached out to me a couple of months ago and you were like, so uh, if you ever want to do Anne of Green Gables, I'm available. And I was pumped because I've been wanting to do Anne of Green Gables. And so I'm dying to know more about why you wanted to do this book, why you reached out to me about it, and kind of what your history is with our heroine of the day, Anne Shirley, and with an E. Let's be clear about that up front. Yes, very clear. I'm actually shocked that no one had wanted to do it before, which then when I read the book again, because I hadn't read it in like, I don't know, like 15 years at least, I was like, why did I like this so much as a kid? Because it's a really weird book, and it was originally written as a children's book, but when you read it as an adult, you're like, there are some weird messages in here, and I think as a kid, I must have seen the movie first. There was this like either TV movie. We had VHS at the time. So it was like a double VHS. Remember how you would get like two because it was so long. And I loved it as a kid because she was really imaginative. And she, instead of using 
you know, the real names for things, she would come up with these really romantic names, like instead of Barry's Pond, it would be like the Lake of Shining Waters. And I was like, that's so great. Imagination is so great. And so I think that's what I clung to as a kid. But reading it as an adult was a totally weird experience or a weird like look back at like, maybe I was a weird kid. Well, you're not a weird kid. This book has sold 50 million copies, which is crazy. Okay, okay, yeah. So I just want you to rest in the knowledge that you're not the only one. This is a wildly popular book. Interestingly, I had never read Anne of Green Gables, and I feel a little bit embarrassed to admit that. Did you think it was weird? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I did think it was weird. Here's my thing with my history of Anne of Green Gables. I received like a beautiful boxed set of the mass market paperback editions. So like the smaller trim size, the really chunky kind of books. I was probably seven or eight and my grandmother gave me the boxed set. And I remember that it was beautiful. Like the spines were all floral and it was in this really pretty feminine box. And like book nerd that I was at the time, I was like, oh, like I cannot wait to read these books. I haven't read them before. They seem fancy and famous and I'm all about being <laughs> fancy and famous. And I opened the first book in the series, Anne of Green Gables, obviously. And I was like, oh, wow. These words are really small, and this is a really long book. And even me as the bookworm, I was a little spooked by it. So I put it back on my shelf and sort of just, like, admired it because, like I said, it was really pretty. And I think I, like, returned to that book periodically, like, every few months, every few years, and thought about reading it and just was, like, kind of intimidated by the book until I sort of just lost interest. So it sat on my bookshelf when I was a kid for years just as this, like, pretty prop. But I never (laughs) opened it, which is really humiliating because, as we said, this is, like, a majorly popular, super kind of, like, culturally important book and I was totally out of the loop. I do think the movies had a big impact, though. Like, like, even when I was watching this week the new Netflix version of it, Anne with an E, so many people were like, I loved those movies as a kid. I loved them so much. So I think if the movie hadn't existed and my mom hadn't introduced me to it, I might not have read the book. But I loved the book as well. And it's it's pretty much the same. Like, even some of the dialogue is the same as the movies. But I think I also, as a kid, just liked anything that had a female heroine in it. And I was just just obsessed with the fact that like she was kind of my age when I was reading it and like again she was really imaginative loved to just like dream all day and I must have been like that as a kid although I thought I was very serious as a child but maybe that was like why I clung to the absurd at the same time. Do you remember about how old you were when you read the book? I was probably 10 or 11. I was a big reader, obviously, um, when I was a kid. And I, even longer books like this with small print didn't seem to scare me. And I also had some Anne in me where I thought it was a very romantic idea to read a book that had come out in like a time before me. That is an Anne move, I gotta say. (laughs) But reading it now, I don't know. I thought that she was so annoying. Like, she takes up entire pages with just her dialogue and her observations about things. And I was like, if I had to drive you to my house, like, if I had picked up the wrong orphan and brought you to my house, like, I would send you back. You're so annoying. (laughs) I kind of love that you already read the book. And so now you have this transformed view. Whereas I came to it with, like, totally fresh eyes. And my impression was, I mean, I have a lot of feelings about it and there are a lot of weird things and we're going to dive into all of it, but I will say sort of like big picture, it was kind of lovely and I'm using lovely very specifically to revisit this kind of a book, like to get lost in this kind of language. It was a very specific kind of reading experience and one that I like never have anymore as an adult. And that part of it, I really enjoyed. Like there was something very sweet about it. Also, I think that books like this that, as you said, were written before our time that I may have read when I was a kid. The language seemed so intimidating, like even the ones that I read, not like Anne of Green Gables, because we all know I skipped out on that. But the books that I read sort of of this era when I was a kid, I remember like not necessarily understanding the way all the sentences were constructed, not really getting the vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And I kind of was like, oh, how cool is it that I know exactly what she's trying to say? Yeah, (laughs) totally. It makes you feel like you're in on some little like secret 
yeah, I felt very grown up reading this book, which I guess is appropriate as a grown up. But I do want to talk a little bit about sort of like the weirdness of the audience or the intended audience. And for me, there is such a disconnect. And you sort of hinted at this, but I think we should talk about it a little bit more before we get into plot stuff and characters. So it's definitely a book about a kid. I mean, clearly, Anne is 11 years old when we meet her and she is coming to Green Gables. But the book very much feels as if it's written for adults, not only the length, not only sort of like the style of it but there's something about it that just feels kind of like like an adult fiction novel it's like you know several years in this character's life and you're following her through all these ups and downs it's very episodic and I I just struggled with this disconnect of like (laughs) this is a kid's book in like an adult book's body or something yeah part of me just imagines children in the 1900s early 1900s being so much more sophisticated than I am Maybe. No, they probably had worse educations. Who knows? There is a total disconnect. And when I was reading it again, I thought, oh, this seems very like serialized. I mean, the plot is just like time goes by and Anne does something weird again or messes something up and learns her lesson. So at first I was like, oh, maybe this appeared in a newspaper and that's why it has this funky kind of plot. There's no real mystery to it. Like, there's no real storyline that's clear, like, oh, is she going to win in the end? I mean, there's a lo- there's one loose one, a romantic one, but I guess it's not romantic yet. Spoiler alert. But, yeah, I don't quite understand why I loved it as a kid, other than it probably just made me feel really smart for reading it, even if I didn't totally understand it all. I was trying to look it up. I'm like, no, it wasn't serialized into smaller bits. Like, it's just one huge book. <laughs> that kids are supposed to like, I guess. I do think some of the appeal is just in sort of like the romance, not necessarily Mm -hmm. like a romantic relationship, but this romance of a little girl who's on her own traveling to this beautiful place and meeting all of these people. And there's so much beautiful description. And I think as a kid, I really would have loved picturing things like Anne's dream bedroom and like some of the games that she and her bosom friend Diana would play. Like those kinds of descriptions, while definitely tedious at times, and I do have trouble believing that kids absorb all of those descriptions all the time but there's something very romantic about them and I think as a kid even if I'd picked up on like half of them that would have been enough for me to love the book yeah and I think I also like that there was the aspect of her going to school so that was something I could relate to and I really related to her um, competitive nature with Gilbert so they were both like at the top of their class and trying you know to out win each other um, through school which was something that I definitely related to and probably a huge reason why I liked it as a kid. Reading it as an adult, I was like, maybe I liked it as a kid because I thought that this is how adults talk and act. So it made me feel like this is something to aspire to, even though reading it now, I'm like, I would never talk like that or books like that. I would probably like set aside and not come back to for a really long time. It made you feel a little fancy. Totally. Fanciness is fun. So for all of the listeners who I'm sure have not read Anne of Green Gables in a long time, I happened to find some great articles out there about Anne of Green Gables, especially because, as you mentioned, there's a new Netflix adaptation out there. So there's a lot of good content out there about Anne. I will link everything that I found in the show notes. But again, for those who have not revisited Anne of Green Gables in a while, I found Um, an article from the New York Times Magazine written in 2017. And the opening paragraph is this really beautiful summary of Anne and her character. So I do want to read that so that everybody can sort of be reminded of who we're dealing with because we keep talking about how long this book is. And so we're not going to have time to really like (laughs) reread all of the excerpts that describe who she is directly from the book. So I think that this piece from New York Times Magazine is a good starting point. Do you know Anne Shirley? You would like her. Everybody does. A lively and optimistic survivor with a feverish imagination and unchecked enthusiasms, she is a red-headed outsider who becomes an insider without forsaking her peculiarities or her intelligence. An inadvertent feminist, an unrepentant romantic, a hot-tempered sprite. She's impulsive, she's dramatic, she's smart, she's funny. She insists on spelling her name with an E at the end because it looks so much nicer. She speaks in exclamation marks and italics even when in the, quote, depths of despair. 
her, which, as an abused child, she knows a thing or two about. She is perpetually seeking kindred spirits. She loves trees and stories and nut-brown hair and will burn whatever is in the oven while dreaming about trees and stories and nut-brown hair. She can heal infant with the croup, but she cannot tie herself down to anything so unromantic as dishwashing at thrilling moments or be asked to eat anything so unromantic as boiled pork and beans when one is in affliction. She is small and freckled and indefatigable. She is nearly 110 years old. (laughs) That's amazing. I think that really like sums her up pretty well. Yes. And it made me, even just hearing that, it made me realize that like, even though she's annoying and even though if you met her in real life, you probably wouldn't want to be friends with her. Like as a character in a book, you want to root for her. Like she's an orphan and all she ever wanted, you know, was to have a bosom friend and to be loved and to be thought of as beautiful, which I want to talk about because there's so much focus on beauty in this book, but, um, yeah, you just, you want her to have all those things because she seems so passionate about life. She is very lovable and she's so earnest. And this same New York Times Magazine article goes on to go into an interview with the director and the creator of the new Netflix adaptation, who is a Breaking Bad alum, which is interesting. And the writer of the article talks about how this creator is really trying to make and with an E sort of like quote unquote tribute TV sort of in the realm of like the Sopranos or Breaking Bad or Mad Men or Girls and how challenging it is when you have a character like Anne Shirley who is sort of like the essence of good and the opposite of a character like Don Draper or Walter White like how do you reconcile that so I think that's interesting because like you're saying even though she's annoying at her heart she's like pure good yeah she just wants to love people and be loved back and it's kind of hard to hate on that at the end of the day so you've already expressed that you would have kicked her out of the wagon that you're driving as you're going to pick her up from the train station let's talk about those first impressions of Anne to catch everybody up we meet Marilla and Matthew Cuthbert Cuthbert I'm not sure how to pronounce their name Cuthbert. Cuthbert. Okay, the movies, yeah. Clearly, I have not seen the movies either. I'm an Anne of Green Gables newbie. Confession, for like the first 60 to 70 pages of the book, I thought Matthew and Marilla were married, and I was very confused. Um, I was going to ask you that because even I thought that just, even though I knew, it's not clear in the book. It's really not. I don't think she ever comes right out and says, like, they are brother and sister. And so you sort of just realize, like, oh, they're living together. They're adopting a child together. And again, I know we're not supposed to be making assumptions, but this book is set in the late 19th century. What am I to believe other than the fact that they're married? And so then when they started referring to each other as like an old maid and a bachelor, I was like, well, this is kind of rude that you're calling your partner this, like low blow. (laughs) So it took me a long time to figure out that they're not married, but they're not. They run this farm at Green Gables and they decide that they want to basically just like get a child, which is sort of funny to think about. They want to get an orphan. They want a boy to help around the house, to help around the farm because Matthew is getting old and sort of can't handle the responsibility of all of it anymore. So they heard about some other neighbor in town getting a child. This language just cracks me up. Um, And they're like, oh, we'll get one too. And rather than going themselves, they tell this neighbor like, oh, can you like grab us a boy while you're out there and we'll meet you at the train station. Matthew goes to the train station and there's this redheaded girl sitting there alone. And of course, like he walks right by her at first and doesn't realize that she is the one that he's supposed to be picking up because naturally he's looking for like a strapping young man to help him milk the cows and stuff. But we find out that Anne is his girl and he sort of just has to take her home and figure out what to do with her. Excellent summary. Is that good? Okay. It's sometimes I'm like, am I making sense? Am I just like going on and on? But I think I got it. Um, And then we are sort of left to figure out what they're going to do with Anne. Yeah. And I love that even in the course of picking her up and driving her home, Matthew's already totally fallen in love with her. Like he's very quiet. He's very shy. So he's not going to say much anyway. And she just kind of takes over And when she realizes that he doesn't mind that she's talkative and he's like, you can talk all you like. I don't mind. Um, It kind of opens the door for her to just keep talking more. And again, like in the book, she talks for entire pages and you're just like, woman, girl, calm it down. Yeah, I think Marilla is the one that really would be more like me and would say, no, she can't stay here and would be a little less trusting in the beginning. 
Whereas Matthew's like, well, I think she's like kind of cute and she seems fine enough. What are we going to do? Send her back? Which, I mean, true. What are you going to do? Just be like, you have to get back on the train and go to this place that they're calling the asylum. And I know that this is probably just the name for like an orphan's home or something. But the word asylum, which was repeated over and over again for the first 100 pages of the book, really gave me the chills and made me uncomfortable. And again, I know this is like the parlance of the time when it was written, but I found it a little jarring. It is really jarring. And it, her experiences there were, I mean, she was with a family, I think, right before that had taken her from the asylum. And they had like two sets of twins. They were just awful to her. They abused her. And so, yeah, it does nothing for orphanages <laughs> at that time. But also um, it shows the contrast of why she's so happy to be with Matthew and Marilla and, um, and how sad she is when she realizes that they actually wanted a boy. I pulled out this really awful quote from when she sort of realizes that she was not wanted. She says, you don't want me. You don't want me because I'm not a boy. I might have expected it. Nobody ever did want me. I might have known it was all too beautiful to last. I might have known nobody really did want me. (sighs) It's dramatic, but it's sad at the same time because, I mean, I never felt unwanted or unloved as a kid, but I think that I did find that idea very romantic and it it was dramatic, but it appealed to me. Well, so many of the books that we read as kids are about orphans. You know, I think about like The Little Princess was one of my favorite books growing up. And there's definitely this trope in kid lit about kids that have sort of been like left to fend for themselves in some way. I just think it's an interesting like pattern in children's literature and to see how different authors handle it is fascinating to me. And I think that the cool thing about Anne, different maybe from some of the other orphans that we've read about throughout different periods of of childhood for different kinds of kids, is that Anne is definitely like kind of made stronger, made more imaginative. She gets this great sense of humor and like appreciation for things through her experience. It definitely has not broken her, although she does have these moments of drama. And I actually, in preparing to talk to you, all that I did was create three columns to take notes from the book. They're called hilarious slash dramatic and quotes, wise and quotes, <laughs> and upsetting shit. <laughs> That's how I prepared to talk to you. So That's pretty much a Venn diagram of the book. <laughs> yeah, and there's definitely some overlap. And there were so many times that I literally in the margins just wrote like LOL dramatic. And the last excerpt that I just read about you don't want me, you don't want me, I have to say like I, I can't even call that dramatic because I think that's probably how I would feel and might even be how I would react. I mean, she has nothing to lose. She doesn't know these people. She's just like kind of telling them how it is, which is that she feels terrible. Yeah. And it's funny to me that Marilla doesn't seem to have more sympathy. Like she's a really tough nut to crack. And in the beginning, she's like, no, we just wanted a boy like that. It's not personal type of thing. And then you can see her like kind of throughout the story as Anne does. Well, even like through Anne's mishaps, you can see how she's wearing Marilla down. She's like, I can't send you back. She's got a cold heart, but there's a heart in there somewhere. It's kind of this idea of like, you're never too old to change, maybe. Right. Well, true. And then also, I like that Anne is like, throughout all of this, Anne uses her imagination to like make her life better. So even when things are really bad, she just imagines that they did maybe want her. And I kind of felt for a second that that goes to like everything we try with self-care at the moment. It's like we try to create this like better world for ourselves. And it's kind of just what Anne Shirley's been doing all along is like creating this awesome world. Like we believe that a face mask can kind of change everything. Well, Anne just believes that imagining that your life is better might actually make it better or will at least transport you from this bad time that you're having. So I, I'm kind of, I was thinking about how maybe she's not so crazy after all. Yeah. The phrase that she always uses is scope of imagination. Like even when she's Mm -hmm. on the ride home from the train station with Matthew, she's looking out at all of the beautiful sights that she's seeing. And she's like, Oh, there's so much scope for imagination here. And you know, sometimes she'll comment like, oh, this person has no scope for imagination. And I loved that phrase. It's not one that I'd ever heard before. And I did wonder as a reader, like, where did she pick up that phrase? You know, it's not like she's just using imagination in itself. She has this like very particular set of words that she uses to describe being imaginative. I feel like there's a backstory there that we probably will never know as readers, although who knows with all these adaptations and the Netflix adaptation really seems to be digging into backstory. So maybe they'll go there. But she really is obsessed with the scope of imagination. Yeah, um, it's a really good burn, too, to say that someone, like, has no scope for the imagination. Like, oh, she has no scope for the imagination. It's like, 
damn, that hurt. I'm going to start using that maybe like in my life. Yeah. It's a great thing to say to people who are boring. And I think also as a kid, I was just attracted to wild personalities, not in my friend group, but maybe like characters that were a little bit out there or just women with dramatic hair and makeup. I always thought that was really cool. I liked performers like Bette Midler who were like funny and sassy and out there. And I think Anne also appreciates those type of people. What She doesn't care about cool. She just cares that you're imaginative and you're kind of just who you are. And she wants to find kindred spirits. Yes, I love that. Who doesn't? I just love that. It's not a phrase that I think about very often, like actively in my life. But when I was reading it so often in this book, I was like, oh, I feel so connected to that idea now, especially, you know, now as like, a 20 something woman. I'm like, I have realized over the last like five, six years, especially like kindred spirits are sort of the most important thing in life. And I don't think that's something that I would have appreciated as a kid reading this book. I think it's pretty profound of Anne to realize that finding a kindred spirit is way more than finding friends that are cool or just kind of like going with the crowd at school. Yeah, so true. It's kind of the equivalent of finding your people, you know, like when your people are your kindred spirits and yeah, it's a dramatic name, but she gets the point, right? And she finds her kindred spirit and her bosom friend in Diana, who is her neighbor and they have so many fun mishaps. There's one in particular that I want to talk about, but at the risk of not including all of the notes that I took about dramatic things that Anne says, <laughs> I just have to say this one thing on Mike because it makes me laugh every time I think about it. So they do have this falling out and Diana's mom tells Anne that they're not allowed to hang out anymore, which is heartbreaking for any kid, of course. And she says... Diana gave me a lock of her hair, and I'm going to sew it up in a little bag and wear it around my neck my whole life. (laughs) It's so amazing. It's so amazing. It's so creepy. It's so dramatic. And I just, like, love the idea of picturing a little kid saying this. But you're right. I think when I was 10 or 11 reading this book, I probably would have just been like, oh, that's how people talked back then. Like, this this was normal. Or when you're little, everything kind of seems so dramatic, too. Like, if you got in an argument with your parents, like, I'm never talking to you again, or I'm, you know, running away. Those are the type of threats you made. Obviously, you didn't mean them, but everything seems so dramatic at that, like, preteen age. Every move you make is going to predict your future. I think that even goes into your 20s a little bit. Um, So I could see why she would be dramatic like that. Another really dramatic thing that she says about Diana, she says to Marilla, and this is very soon after she's moved to Green Gables, which I love because it's like, these people don't know you. And you're really just like coming in hot, sharing all of your thoughts, every last feeling you've ever had. This happens after Anne realizes that she hates Gilbert and Diana is in love with Gilbert. And she goes home and she says to Marilla, I love Diana so, Marilla. I cannot ever live without her, but I know very well when we grow up that Diana will get married and go away and leave me. And oh, what shall I do? I hate her husband. I just hate him furiously. I've been imagining it all out, the wedding and everything. Diana dressed in snowy garments with a veil and looking as beautiful and regal as a queen and me the bridesmaid with a lovely dress too and puffed sleeves, but with a breaking heart hidden beneath my smiling face and then bidding Diana goodbye. And then she breaks down in fucking tears. And (laughs) I, I think it's amazing because Marilla barely knows her. She barely knows Diana. She has no idea who this Gilbert kid is and she is losing her damn mind. Oh, yeah. The puff sleeves thing is it it comes back later, too. And it's like she takes everything to the umpteenth degree. And it's so fun to read because you're like, what a crazy. But again, if that was that was your dinner table, you'd be like, please calm it down. I think the puff sleeves thing I was also obsessed with as a kid. I just loved that type of dressing. Maybe it's like being a child of the 80s and I can't avoid it. But the type of things she would say were insane. That is so good. I love that. We would definitely call her in 2019 extra. Like she's the most extra 11-year-old in the world. The most extra. And I also feel like, yeah, everyone kind of knows one. Like everyone knows an Anne Shirley that's like just drama everywhere she goes, but also kind of a true blue friend at the end of it all. Like she's so fiercely loyal to a fault in some ways, because this keeps her from ever really getting to know Gilbert because she just hates him for 
calling her carrots or making fun of her hair because she's also very sensitive at the same time. Like, she's all the things. You're right. She's extra. She has a lot of feelings. We talked about her hair briefly. We've talked about puffed sleeves. I know we wanted to get into the focus on appearances and beauty. Let's do that because you're right. That is a big part of this book and is sensitive and in particular about the way she looks. We pick up on that from like almost minute one when she arrives in Green Gables. She's already sort of getting down on herself about the way she looks. It's clear that the people that she was living with before were very horrible to her and insulted her and called her names. And so she comes to Marilla and Matthew with kind of a pretty serious complex about the way that she looks. Yeah. And I think her looks are so extreme that people can't help but notice how skinny she is or how red her hair is or her freckles. The Netflix movie casted an actress that had really gnarly teeth. I don't know how else to say it, but I think the actress who played it in the one that I loved as a kid had straight teeth. I can't remember. Anyway, but yeah, she, she brings it up so often too. Like, I know I look like this. I know that no one will ever marry me because I have red hair. She didn't care that she was smart. She just wanted to be beautiful, which is such a like weird message to send to young girls reading this. It really surprised me reading it again, how much she focuses on her looks. And it causes her to get into some pretty serious altercations. We already talked about Gilbert Blythe, who is kind of like the cool guy in school as as it seems to me at least. And he does that thing that boys do in school that I think we used to think was okay and probably now in the era of Me Too is probably going to be scolded upon more where, you know, little boys like tease their classmates and it's kind of like explained away as flirting and, oh, he just likes you. I think that's kind of how we've been conditioned to treat it. I don't know that that will be how it is moving forward, but he's definitely like the ultimate tease and he pulls on Anne's braids and calls her, as you said, carrots because her hair is so red and she freaks out at him. She gets in trouble at school. The worst punishment ever is that she's then made to sit next to him, which is just like so cruel. Um, But she also gets into a fight with the Cuthbert's neighbor, Mrs. Lind, um, who is like so rude. I mean, she's so mean. She's brutally honest. She basically comes over and is like, we wouldn't have picked you for your looks to a child, which is evil. But Anne really has no hesitation about telling her exactly how she feels about her. I don't have the exact quote, but speaks in a way that I think anybody could agree is disrespectful coming from a child to an adult. And that creates tension between her and Marilla, who obviously like doesn't want to be humiliated in front of her friends and neighbors. So her looks are this like very sensitive nerve that especially in like the first year that she's at Green Gables, it caused a lot of issues for her and makes it more difficult for her to settle in, not always because of what other people think, but because of the way that she reacts to sort of any like sideways comment or glance about her appearance. Yeah, it's weird because it's almost like when people let her down, she's like, oh, it's you, you don't want me because I have red hair or you couldn't like me because I have red hair. Like she doesn't grasp that it could be, you know, another situation. Like she always thinks that her looks are the reason people might not like her. And maybe that's why she overcompensates with these like fantastic stories or, you know, the girls at school dare her to walk on the ridge pole of a building and she's like, well, I'll do it. And I think it's because she's always trying to like compensate for what she thinks is a setback. And then when she goes to talk to Rachel Lynn, who Rachel Lynn is like that aunt that everyone has that who's like, when you see her at Thanksgiving, she's like, oh, have you put on, have you put on weight? Mm -hmm. You look a little fuller in the face. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. Or like the aunt who always is asking you if you're dating anyone or that type of deal. And she's such a busy body. So Rachel kind of deserves what she got from Anne when Anne gives it to her. But I also like how it, you know, we've all, again, had those instances where we wish we could talk back like that. And I wish I had more Anne in me, a little bit more fire to get back at the bullies. And so I really admire that about her, that she doesn't hold back, although it totally gets her in trouble with Marilla, at least, and doesn't win any points with with Rachel Lynn by doing that. But I think that the way that she's so sensitive and about her looks is her crutch. And it taught me as a kid, I remember this, to not point out people, because you don't know what people are sensitive about, and it could be the thing that you notice first. So I remember as a kid thinking like, Ooh, maybe don't compliment them on something. Not that, you know, carrots is not a compliment, but just don't 
point things out because what if they're really sensitive about it and they smash a slate over your head? Well, because you saying to somebody like Anne, who is very sensitive about her hair, oh, what beautiful red hair you have could be taken like completely the wrong way. Because like you said, you don't know sort of where her self-esteem is at any given time or like what her relationship is like with her hair or with any other part of her appearance. Yeah, and she should really, like, the author's not doing any favors to redheads and their, you know, um, stereotype of having fiery tempers because Anne has it, for sure. Yeah, she definitely does. The other thing that's interesting that I had actually just thought about in terms of this argument that she has with Rachel Lind and with a lot of the other adults over the course of the book is that, like, before she came to Green Gables, Anne in so many ways was expected to act like an adult. Like, she basically worked, I mean, presumably when she was, like, eight or nine years old, was working for this family as a nanny, taking care of their eight children. She had very adult responsibilities, and she's very immature in a lot of ways, but because she's been treated like an adult. I think she just doesn't seem to have much of a filter about the way she talks to people that are older than she is because her mode of survival thus far has been to sort of like exist among adults and get through it as best as she can. And sometimes that comes out as just saying what she wants to adults. Whereas kids that maybe have grown up being more sheltered and like treated like children understand that there's more of a separation between themselves and their parents and their parents' friends. Marilla says that a lot too. She's like, she doesn't know any better because she's never been taught. Like no one ever taught her how to pray, for instance. Like she had no idea what that meant. Like, do I kneel? Do I have to, you know, clasp my hands? What do I do? To How do I format a prayer? So it's almost like she just needed a guidebook, but never got that. So that this is what happened. Speaking of appearances, we mentioned puffed sleeves, but I have to talk about them more because I just think this is hilarious. So one of the first things that Anne asks for when she gets to Green Gables is a dress with puffed sleeves, which we can all picture from our own childhood days. And I guess this was the fashion in the late 19th century. All of the little girls had dresses for school with puffed sleeves. And Marilla is a very sensible, practical woman. And instead, she makes her these like very simple, almost like austere sounding black and brown muslin dresses to wear to school and to play and everything. And at first, Anne is very disappointed and I'm sure makes a very dramatic speech about how her life is not complete without puffed sleeves. And she goes on for most of the book without them and we kind of forget about it. And this very sweet thing happens with Matthew. I love this scene. Matthew goes to the store. I guess there's, you know, a one store in town, two stores in town. And he has a dress with puff sleeves made for Anne for I think a concert that they go to. They don't call them concerts, but yeah, she was in like a work. Christmas show or something, and so he got it for her as a Christmas gift that she because he was he I remember this scene. He was like looking, he was observing Anne playing with all her friends, and he realized that there was something different about her, and he couldn't quite put his finger on it. And then he was like, oh, her sleeves are different than everyone else's. And it's funny how such a small thing, when she receives this gift, she obviously is so touched by it and it kind of changes everything for her because now she can be a woman or like you said, be like the other girls. And it made me think too. It's like, yeah, if puff sleeves make you feel awesome, like wear puff sleeves. Like it made me have a new appreciation for things that may seem frivolous. If they make you happy, then it's not so frivolous after all. I agree. And I think that this whole idea that he would like keep a secret from Marilla because he knew that Marilla would think that it was stupid for and to have puffed sleeves. I just thought that was really sweet. It was such an indication of where their relationship was going. I love Matthew. And I think that maybe more so than the issue with her hair, I think that this insecurity about her clothes is something that pretty much any kid reader can relate to because anybody who's ever been like a preteen or a teen understands how it feels to not fit in. And as terrible as it is, a lot of times that manifests in the way we're dressed or like the kinds of shoes we have or the cool backpack that you're not carrying when everybody else is. So I did appreciate that. And I think it's nice for us to be like, oh, how silly it is for her to worry about her appearance. But I think the puffed sleeves is something that we have all kind of experienced in our own way, in our own time. Totally. What What was it for you? For me, it was having like cool jeans because I went to Catholic school and we didn't really get to have uniforms. I wasn't allowed to shop at Limited 2 because my mom 
thought that it was kind of tacky. Like she didn't like that there were logos all over it and she didn't like all of the sort of like glittery icons on the t-shirts. And all of my friends obviously shopped at Limited Two and had all of those t-shirts that I wanted with like, you know, I don't know, like cool girl or like fun girl. I don't know. I don't know what the t-shirt said because I didn't have any mom. That was for me. I definitely felt left out. We got all of my clothes at like Gap and Children's Place. I shopped at Children's <laughs> Place until I was an inappropriate age to be shopping at Children's Place. <laughs> it's hard to make that leap though to an adult store. Like I really wanted to stay a child forever. So like I liked shopping at Limited Two or those type of places. I think the first time I was allowed to go to Limited Two was when I had to buy like my first bra. I think my mom took me to Limited Two to buy my first bra because she didn't know where else to go. <laughs> See, I bet Anne would have, like, loved the idea of going bra shopping, though. Like, Anne would have been, like, wanting to wear a bra since she was, like, eight or something, you know? She would have had a whole monologue about what it meant for her emotionally and, like, all the new worlds that were going to be open to her because of wearing a bra and how excited she was to have them be pretty and feminine. It would have been, like, three chapters worth of content. Totally. And until then, she would have just imagined an amazing bra. Whereas for the rest of us, it was, like, completely traumatic and stressful. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, again, that's, like, the joy of Anne is she'll just, like, imagine the bad things away. I did find, as I was reading this as an adult, it was a nice feeling to be reminded of that sense as a kid of everything being important and everything being special. The moments when she was invited places and getting to go to a tea party or or being allowed to go into town with her friend and with her friend's mom and sort of like being able to leave the house on your own or the stress of potentially not being allowed to go somewhere and sort of like the bargaining that takes place with your parent when you're about to be told that you can't do something and you're panicking and it feels like everything is slipping away from you in that moment. And I just... I really was refreshed by that and just, I don't know. I mean, I read this right after New Year's and I think it's like a nice perspective going into the new year about like appreciating the little things and realizing like how much control I have over my life now that I didn't have as a kid. Like you definitely get that sense from Anne where she, she appreciates so much about the world, but there's so much about it that she can't access because she's a kid and Marilla is pulling all the strings. And so those elements of her personality sort of like inspired me and gave me a little boost coming into 2019. Oh, nice. I also like that uh, one of the things Rachel Lynn tells her when Anne issues her like kind of fake apology is that she's like, I knew a girl who had hair just as red as yours and she grew up and it turned really pretty auburn color. And that just gives Anne so much hope. The idea that this is not permanent, this could grow into a really pretty color. And now I don't have to feel so miserable about my life right now because like it will be over soon. Life will go on. Right. This too shall pass. And I think her attitude generally was like, and Marilla kind of tried to get rid of this element of her personality where Anne just anticipated everything. Like she anticipated all of the good and all of the bad. And Marilla wanted her to not be so high strung all the time. And so she wanted her to anticipate things less, but Anne explains to her that like anticipating things, especially when you're anticipating a good thing is kind of half the fun, because even if you don't get it, even if it slips away from you, you had the experience of dreaming about it, imagining it. And that's such a great attitude. I think adults like us can probably take a page from her book there. Yeah, I think there's even studies that have been done that say the best part of a trip is the anticipation, like a vacation that you go on, like the most fun you have won't be on the actual vacation. It will be the planning and thinking about it, the the pre-vacation. Can you imagine Anne getting ready to go to Disney World? <laughs> no, not at all. Oh, Jesus. She would have bought three pairs of Mickey ears before the trip. She would be wearing them around the house. She'd be wearing them to school. She would have a mini backpack. She wouldn't sleep for yeah. four days. It would be such a hilarious lead-in to a vacation. Yeah, someone needs to modernize Anne. Like, I I can't think of a modern character that is that precocious, smart, but insecure, but annoying, but lovely. Yeah, it's just, I cannot imagine her. She would have memorized the park map. She She would have known where all the characters are going to be at every time. (laughs) Completely. Yeah, she'd have all the fast passes. I want to go to Disney World with Anne Shirley, so... I wish maybe that's like my my big dream in life is to be guided around Disney World with Anne of Green Gables. Oh my god, she would know the whole history of the park. She wouldn't shut up about it. No, she would. Have, yeah, and Walt Disney loves imagination, so she would have felt like she was kindred spirits with Walt Disney himself. <laughs> 
there's a lot that goes on sort of in the middle section of this book. I'll say some of it was interesting. A lot of it to me was not. It's episodic. Every chapter kind of explains like a single incident in Anne's life between the ages of 11 and 15. Some of the mishaps and misadventures are funny. I'll say my favorite is when she accidentally gets Diana drunk because she is like hosting her for a tea party when Marilla's out of the house and she thinks that she's giving Diana raspberry cordial, but really it's wine that Marilla has been storing and she can't understand why Diana is sick and why she wants to go home. I thought that was really funny. For me, that was the highlight of that middle section, but I think what's really interesting for us to talk about now is kind of what happens toward the end of the book when she starts to excel at school. Um, As you mentioned, she after like a few rough months, I think, getting settled into school where she's really struggling, she reveals herself to be very smart and she's the top of her class. She gets to take these exams to go to Queens College or Queens Academy, which is a teacher school. And the last third of the book, I would say, is about her aspiring to go to this college, studying for the exam. I guess it's not a college. Here's what's confusing. The ages of the kids in these of this <laughs> book is weird because when she finishes all of this education, presumably, she's 16. So I don't really know what to call any of these levels of schooling because she goes off to Queens, but she's 14. Like, I don't, I'm confused. Anyway, Queens is where she's going to go become a teacher. And I really want to talk about the big kind of climax moment of this book, the big decision that Anne has to make at the end. It's so Anne because she's eventually becoming more mature. She's learning how to hold her tongue a little bit more. She's studying really hard to be the top of her class. But then, um, sadly, Matthew gets really... Is this what you're talking about? Yeah. 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 So she earns a scholarship. So So not only has she... She's finished her teaching training, I think, in one year instead of two. And she finds out that she won a scholarship, an English scholarship, to go get her Bachelor of Arts, which was never part of the plan because it was expensive and it was just not really part of her scope of imagination, I would say. But she finds out that she's going to be able to go and she goes back to Green Gables to share the news. And yes, this terrible thing happens. Yeah, so it turns out that Matthew is really sick and he has what I think is a heart attack and passes away, which leaves Marilla lonely, but also without any money because he had done some type of bad investment or bank deal. So Anne is now torn. Do I stay with Marilla? Do I go to college? The scholarship, you know, like, again, it's free. So she hadn't anticipated it, but then got really excited about it. And who should come to the rescue? but her nemesis, Gilbert. And Gilbert, instead of going to college, has decided to teach at Avonlea School, which is where they all went to school, um, she and Gilbert. And he decides to give his teaching position at Avonlea School to Anne so that she can delay going to college and work at the school or teach at the school where they grew up. And he's just going to teach at a neighboring school. Um, So this will be, she'll be close enough so she can still stay at Green Gables, still live with Marilla, but also teach and, and make good of her time at Queens. So it kills her a little bit that the one person who kind of saves the day is someone who she's detested and ignored for so long. But the Gilbert thing is weird because he apologized for calling her carrots early on. And then after that, kept trying to win Anne back and trying to be normal again with her. And she just kept pushing him away. She's like, I can't, I can't. There's a moment where um, he saves her from drowning, basically. She's playing make-believe with her friends and is in a canoe or a raft situation that starts leaking. And he happens to be there and saves her. And even then, because of her pride, she can't accept a friendship with the man who called her carrots as a as a young boy. And so now that they're older, this is kind of the peace offering and the thing where she can't deny that Gilbert's a good person because he gave up his job for her. And she's had to give up her education to make this decision to stay with Marilla. And the same New York Times Magazine article that I referenced earlier sums up this decision really well. Um, So I'm going to read that. The book, in a manner that is rare for young adult novels even now, is a celebration of Anne's intelligence, which is ultimately cherished by her adoptive parents, her community, and her future partner, Gilbert, who is also her closest academic rival and who, instead of being threatened by Anne's brain, admires her for it. 
And yet at the end of Anne of Green Gables, Anne quits college and returns to the farm to care for an ailing Marilla, never becoming the writer she wanted to be as a child. This is perhaps a disappointing ending and one that previews a string of follow-up novels in which Anne eventually becomes muted by family life, but is an honest one. We still live in a world where a woman's intellect does not preclude her from accruing vast domestic responsibilities. So I was very conflicted about this ending. I think it's beautiful that she recognized the sacrifices that Marilla had made for her and wants to also sacrifice for her family. It kind of felt like the first time that they were coming together as a family, that they were making some of these hard decisions. At the same time, it's hard to read that she's had to make this heartbreaking decision. She was so excited to get the scholarship. She wasn't expecting to get it. It was a huge deal for a girl to get it. Nobody thought that she would. And then she has to give it up. But at the same time, I know that just saying that is sort of like a privileged way for me to look at it because... I'm a woman who hasn't had to make that kind of a decision. And I went to college in 2008 when like it wasn't, you know, I I was lucky I didn't have those kinds of family stresses and I could go and not worry about it. And so I have such mixed feelings because I want to sort of sit here and like rail against the fact that she made that choice. But at the same time, I know that I'm coming at it from such a privileged perspective. I can't remember. She definitely just gives it up, right? Or does she delay it? She can't delay it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know what I would do in that situation. And I feel like my parents or parent would say, you should get your education, but the guilt would also kill me. So yeah, I think it's another weirdly modern and feministy thing about this book. Like the competition between her and Gilbert um, is something I think as a girl who loved school, I could totally relate to competing with all the boys. Like all I wanted to do was beat the boys in school. I had like one competitive female classmate, but I really just wanted to beat the boys because that felt better. And so I understood that. And then to kind of see someone as your enemy after all this time, and then they do this kind thing by letting you, he kind of didn't give her a choice though. Gilbert was like, I, it's already done. I already transferred. So the Avonlea job is open and you, you kind of have to take it if you're going to stay here. But yeah, that choice is really hard. And I think weirdly modern for, you know, the author to write about. I think what was frustrating about it for me was that I was like so fired up by how trailblazing and story had seemed to that point for the first half. I was like, okay, like this is just, you know, kind of this cool story about a kid settling into a new home and I liked her a lot but once things changed and she became super ambitious with school and had all these big goals to become a teacher or a writer I got really into it and I was so proud of her and I was really rooting for her and I absolutely had like an emotional experience when like I realized that she was probably going to have to leave and so I just thought it was interesting that like in 1908 L.M. Montgomery wrote but as you said, this very feminist young girl, a very pro-woman, like pro-women's education story that's ultimately like thwarted by forces out of her control. So I don't think there's a right answer, but it's definitely interesting to consider. And it's a sad choice that I'm sure so many people have to make. Yeah, yeah. It kind of reminded me of, um, I had also just read A Gentleman in Moscow. Have you read that? I started it. I didn't love it, which I know is an unpopular opinion. I had to like really stick with it to love it, to like get the the gems out of it. And one of those gems was he's talking about like, I had all of life's conveniences and it was awesome. I had a car, I had fabulous parties to go to. I was rich and I was, you know, I didn't have kids to worry about. But then, and in the plot, this woman gives him her child basically and then bolts. So he has to take care of her. But he says that you know, amidst all these conveniences, it was the inconvenience that made life worth living. So for me, this was kind of like, and finally having a family and then having to choose them in the end over her. I I feel like it works out in the second book though. And don't quote me, but I... No, but I love that perspective actually. Like, because... I love that perspective because I think as Anne would want, it's very positive spin and it's sort of this idea of like sometimes sacrificing means that, as you said, like you're living a worthwhile life as hard as a sacrifice is. It's a sign that you're in like the right place and you're doing all the right things and you wouldn't have had the opportunity to make those sacrifices had you not found yourself in a family and in a life that gave you 
so much love and like so much reason to to compromise and to give. Yeah, like if she didn't have a family that she loved, it wouldn't have been a hard decision for her. But yeah, it, it, I never thought of it as a bummer that she, I never thought of it from your perspective and that I'm surprised <laughs> that I never felt sad about it. I I didn't even really think about it this time around. That is interesting. Well, I think it's because you probably know what's going to happen next. So you feel like everything worked out the way it was supposed to. Yeah, but it also shows my bias in, you know, here I am like, and all she talks about is love and beauty. And then I'm like, but eventually she gets those things. And so isn't life great? You know, like I, I have fallen victim to Anne's, you know, romantic notions. Well, it's all very complicated and we all want to have it all, obviously. Right. Even Anne wants it all. Even Anne wants it all. So has this experience of rereading Anne made you love it, love her more, or has it sort of ruined it for you? It hasn't ruined it, but it definitely makes me question my childhood a little bit more. What was I thinking? But the more we talk about it, the more I realize that it is a really good character for young girls to read about and know about because the things she does value, I mean, she talks about wanting to be beautiful and wanting, you know, puff sleeves and wanting love, but not being able to find it because of her looks. I think those are insecurities that a lot of girls feel. And then her, the place where she shined and had the most confidence was at school. So I feel like that's also a good message. Um, so maybe I wasn't so wild and crazy after all. Well, I thank you for giving me a chance to finally read it. As I said, I enjoyed it. I actually want to check out one of the many adaptations. I think I'm not going to start with the Netflix one because it seems like it's kind of a dark take. So it's I might, really dark. Yeah, it seems very moody. Um, so I think I might go back to one of the 80s adaptations, which is the one that people have been like messaging me about ever since I shared on social media that we were doing End of Green Gables. But yeah, I really enjoyed the story. It was very long at points and I had moments of like dragging through it. But as a whole, I really enjoyed it. And I think there's a lot of good stuff to talk about, which I didn't necessarily expect. I kind of thought it was just going to be this like pretty story of a girl like moving through the world. But there's interesting stuff here. Yeah. Okay. So I highly recommend the one starring um, a woman named Megan Follows. That's the one that you need to watch. And the Gilbert character, the actor who played Gilbert recently passed away. And there was a story about it in the times about how the fans were like so upset about this, even though it's like he was never in anything else that I cared about. It's just that his role in this movie made people love him so much. Like Twitter went wild when he died. I was really sad about it. I'm like, why am I sad about this character? But yeah, I highly recommend that if you're going to choose one. I think that's the one that I was seeing all over, like sort of like the think pieces that I was reading too. Yeah, people seem to, when I was saying that I read this, people really seem to like that. And I do think it it does hold a special place in a lot of people our ages memories. Like if you liked it, you really liked it, which is cool. I like that. And I actually really appreciate that you read it because now that I read it again as an adult, even for me who had read it before, who had seen the movie versions, I was like, this is long. It's okay though. So I enjoyed it. It was worth it. Worth it for the convo. So... You know, this is how we end every episode. What have you been reading lately? What are you reading now that you would recommend to our listeners? I am reading a book that I'm sure people have recommended before. Um, I'm reading Educated by Tara Westover. Are you reading it? I read it already. Listeners, I'm making a really excited face. I'm trying not to like jump right in on Julie's explanation of why she loves it, which I just did, but I read it last year and I loved it. Go on. Okay, so... I am, I have like a hundred pages left in it and book readers and book lovers. This is just a PSA. If you say a book is so good, so good, so good. I'm probably going to read it, but like, I need a little more context because everyone was like, it's so good. You have to read it. You have to read it. And I was like, this book is really messed up. And no one warned me about that. Like people only said that it was so good, which I appreciate, but I wish I had some warning about how intense it is it's this like it's nonfiction. it reads like fiction it is really disturbing in some parts and I wish I'd had more warning that's what I have to say about it (laughs) I had a similar experience I definitely thought it was just going to be like an interesting memoir of life in sort of like an extremist religious community somebody who worked really hard to go to school but I had no idea that her family is so extreme and so intense 
and so dark. Um, that being said, I loved the book. It gave me such an appreciation for people who really have to fight hard to get an education. And it was one of those books where like every few chapters I would stop reading and like say to my husband, wait, I have to tell you what just happened in this book. You're not going to believe it, but this is real. This is her life. And I would like recount these incidents that she was talking about in the book because I was like so excited to tell somebody I like couldn't believe that it actually happened to her. So if you haven't read it, I think it's worth reading. Yeah. It's one of those, like, how can this all be true type stories? Highly recommend. Even though I haven't finished it, highly recommend it. I think that's a pretty good endorsement if you can recommend it without finishing it. Yeah. I, I like you, wish I was reading it with other people that I could talk to about it. This is how, especially books that kind of like after a chapter, I need to like take a deep breath and like set them down for a second. And that's how I felt. I also read last year, Michelle McNamara's I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which is about the Golden State Killer. I was reading it with my boyfriend at the same time, which like, thank God. It's like, did you get to this part yet? Oh my God. Or I would like text him. I'd read it before bed, which I had to stop doing, but I would text him and be like, Oh my God, I swear the golden secular is in my room. Like going to grab my feet. Like it, you know, it's one of those books. I wish I was reading along with someone so we could talk about it, you know, in real time. Well, find a friend, read educated. I'll include a link to buy it in the show notes as well as a link to Anne of Green Gables for those who have not read it. If you're like me and are like an Anne of Green Gables virgin, I recommend picking it up. Just like don't rush to read it. And, you know, I kind of wish I hadn't been in a time crunch because I definitely like procrastinated on reading the book. Just pick it up when you have plenty of time because it is, there's something very lovely about it. I would recommend it. And I appreciate the chance to read it. So thank you, Julie, for suggesting it. Oh, you're so welcome. And I feel slightly bad about it. Don't. I will. I'm, I'm putting it on the record on the air. Julie does not have to feel bad about having me read Anne of Green Gables. I really did like it. Oh, that makes me happy. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. This was so fun. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.